Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Spector, with Rob Hirschfeld. Good morning, Rob. Stephen, good morning. You ready for a polar vortex? I, I am, and welcome to 2019, which is very exciting. This may be my first podcast of the year. Maybe you've done one. I don't remember. But uh, I'm going to say this is the kickoff of the new year. And I'm excited we have uh, a guest and a, a company I haven't heard of until uh, we booked this podcast, which makes it very exciting. So I hope our listeners are uh, ready for this. We have the CEO of Galactic Fog, and uh, I do like that name. And with us is Daniel Lizio Katzen. I think I did it right, Daniel. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, you, you got it. Thank you very much. And uh, we like our name, too. Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really cool. Um, why don't you tell us a little about yourself and your company, and then uh, we'll dive right in. Sure. So uh, I've been in the, the tech industry since the mid-90s, started out life as a developer, um, and moved into uh, positions of uh, more responsibility and less fun after that, uh, and then sometimes more fun. I've been in a number of different verticals, uh, online travel. I started a software as a service firm called Booker Software back in 2006, and I've been in a few others since. Um, I've been deeply interested in the cloud since uh, AWS came out with S3 and EC2 back in the early 2000s, and have built a number of applications uh, on top of one or more cloud services. And so at Galactic Fog, we fit right into that vein. We actually sit on top of typically Kubernetes today, but also DCOS, Swarm, or Amazon ECS, and we enable large enterprise to federate their developer access across all of those different clouds. So instead of having to use only one, they can use Kubernetes in Amazon and Google and use uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry on-prem, for instance, and we're going to make it all work together and give the developers a seamless experience. Wow. So this is like hybrid container service platform in a way in a way we do the way we stitch it together is using serverless so uh, we wanted to get all of the catchphrases in one company um but basically <laughs> you want some blockchain and uh yeah <laughs> so yeah we'll, we'll add the blockchain don't, don't, don't tell me you have blockchain too so we'll, we'll skip that no no blockchain so uh, <laughs> we try and stay away for sto from storage or storage like services um but basically the way we we bring all of the different clouds together is through our own serverless engine, which we call Laser for Lambda Application Server. And so in addition to doing the cross kind of container management, what we do is do a consistent serverless environment across all of the clouds as well. So instead of just having Amazon Lambda that works in Amazon and cloud functions, which work in Google and Azure functions that work in Azure uh, and whatever works in IBM working in IBM, we'll give you the same serverless plus container management consistently, both on-prem and in any public cloud. Wow. Okay. So that's a big, that's a very big deal because the, the serverless function platforms have a ton of heterogeneity as far as like the event standards and, and things like that. How do you deal with the fact that every one of these platforms is, has their own event patterns and their own, you know, I, actually, you, you know better than I do. How heterogeneous is the uh, event-driven space? 
not not at all basically there are some open source standards like cloud events um, which are starting to gain traction in the CNCF but we actually have since we have our own uh, function as a service engine and laser we kind of don't care about the Google Cloud functions or Lambda because what we're doing is ins installing laser uh, for lack of a better word inside of Kubernetes so we're using Kubernetes as that consistent um, orchestration plane uh, for our serverless engine to run in. Now we we do like the serverless framework enable kind of publishing of a Lambda that's authored in uh, Laser, publishing that out to Amazon Lambda and shortly Google Cloud Functions and then OpenFast in the future. Um, but today it's uh, most, if you want to run it on every cloud, you're going to need to stay native to Laser. Gotcha. And, and that is because the event syntaxes are are different. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the the idea of an event system is pretty standard. I'm assuming, but the actual mapping the data that's coming in has got to be the wild west. Is that a fair yeah, statement? Yeah, it's, it's 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 really how it's uh, it's both related to the language runtimes that are used and also the formatting of the actual code. So, in function as a service, you're basically picking your language runtime. So, uh, on Amazon with Lambda, they started with with Python and JavaScript, right? Basically, Node, and so mm -hmm. the way they wrap that code before it's executed um, is mostly uh, is proprietary to each cloud. Um, now, there's ways of standardizing it and, and serverless framework was uh, was an entry that, that attempts to do that um, although they don't offer um, they offer kind of a write once publish many type solution versus having a consistent engine that runs the same across all the clouds so there are there are differences but as we know this is a pretty dynamic side of of the cloud right now and Last year, it seemed like every uh, comp sci PhD was writing a serverless framework for their thesis. So there's there's a lot of a lot of chatter <laughs> in the market, and they're definitely yeah, and, and there are a fair number of startups who are who are who are trying to uh, figure out how to how to get into this into this space or container virtualization. And so it's a fascinating space. How do you how do you figure out what the right patterns are for the event system? Right. Do you, you know, you've been doing this for a while. You're, you've got, you've got the, the experience. What, what makes something a, a good event, event pattern or an event driven pattern? Um, well, I think there's, there's a couple different um, ways to do it. And so I think first of all, the function as a service engine needs to be tunable. And so one of the, one of the challenges with the public cloud implementations um, of these patterns is that they're maximizing um, the capability so that it runs nicely on top of their infrastructure. And so they limit the amount of tunability. Because with, with laser, we can um, be tuned for the use case. It means if you're building an application like a, a very performant, uh, let's say a Kafka consumer uh, model where you've got serverless workers that are basically taking one Kafka feed um, performing a real-time kind of ETL on it and then publishing a new topic, and you want this to be very, very performant across thousands of cores, well, you can tune Laser to do that. And some of our clients, uh, especially in financial services, have used it for just that. Um, by the same token, if you want to tune it for a very fast uh, cold start, where you're talking about a sub-five millisecond cold start um, and then a quick termination after an event happens, so let's say... Um, uh, you have as an 
enterprise have a page, an application that's really just a redirect service. Um, and instead of having a VM persisting for, you know, forever, basically running a redirect service, you can now just have a Lambda that comes to life instantly when a user clicks the, the short URL that's then redirected to like a long single sign-on. So depending on the use case, you're going to have different um, ways of optimizing how the events happen in the platform. And, and we enable the, the companies to, to tune that basically. That that makes a ton of sense to me because you know I've I use Lambda part of part of what Racken builds is actually has Lambda back Lambda on the back end for our catalog, and it's it's very opaque, right? It's hard to it's hard to figure out your logging. It's hard to figure out what's going on. How do you solve? You know, does does having your standard platform then make you able to expose? You know, logging and events and troubleshooting. How how do you how does Galactic Fog approach that developer experience and I guess operational experience too? Sure, and and just to give a little kind of peek under the cover, what actually happens is Laser has two different models. We have what we call a normal executor and a hyper executor, and the difference is in a normal executor, you kind of have a one uh, lambda per container mapping. So uh, an event happens, it triggers the lambda. The lambda basically builds a container. The runtime is loaded into that container. It's then executed. And then depending on the time to live, it's either kind of terminated instantly or it can hang out in a warm state for as long as, as somebody wants it to, um, which will minimize cold start after that. The second is when you have um, what we call the hyper executor, and this is proprietary to the laser, where we can actually say, hey, we've got a pre-built warm container this container already has a runtime, so the language runtime assigned to it, let's say it's Go or, or Python or something like that, and it also has a preset capacity. So instead of having to go out and allocate cores and memory to this container, we can say we want to run up to 16 lambdas in the same container at a time. And we want so we want this to be very performant, and we know that these lambdas are doing the same task. And so if we're talking about a, a Kafka stream with a half billion transactions a day on it, you, you have an idea of what these transactions look like ahead of time. And so for the most performance, you're going you're gonna to use the hyper executor for that. Uh, so when we start talking about logging, it gets, it gets kind of complicated because if you're doing um, one workload and then the time to live on that container disappears, well, along goes the logs unless you're very careful. So with, uh, with Gestalt, you get a default Elk stack that ships with it. Um, most of our clients are also plugging it into Splunk. But basically, the Elk logging allows us to pull all of the logs from every event that happens when that Lambda is invoked and executed, um, including you know, all of the data if you want. Now, this is part of the, the configuration. And it allows it to be instantly accessible to the developer. So part of what we offer kind of in the interface is a developer may have access to, let's say, four different environments around the same application that they're working on. It could be a local dev integration, QA and production. They may have read-write access, like full kind of admin over that local environment. They may only have, um, you know, write and read, but not full admin access on the dev integration. And on QA, they may only have read access so they can see what the logs say, right? Um, depending, we're going to enable those logs to be visible to the developer or other folks based on all of the policy and permissions that are written around it. And that's, those are visible in real time 
right in the interface, or of course you can you can access them directly through another tool um, like Prometheus. I, to me, what you're describing is really important. From you know, we're we're talking about the these lambda systems, and in Amazon, it's deeply embedded into the system, right? That's that's one of the value propositions. But what what you're describing, especially for on premises or when you're when you're embedded in another environment, all of these operational characteristics allow you to tune the system, right? It actually becomes integrated into the your customer's workspace, your customer's overall environment, and it, that's a, that seems really like a different. You know, the, the Lambda stuff itself is, is seems pretty straightforward um, now, I guess, conceptually. But the, the the ability to integrate it into somebody's environment is is a is an important differentiation. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely think so. It it I, I like this. This is one of the, I've I've been watching to see how the market would evolve around, you know, an event uh, you know event driven platforms. I don't think they're you know, we need you know there's there's going to be um, right now one you know clear thing especially cuz what you're describing is a very nuanced environment there's reasons to have specialization there's reasons to have uh different capabilities in in these systems uh how do you wow and so what what you're I have so many I have so many questions <laughs> I and I'm trying I'm looking at my notes and trying to figure out what what yeah I think I can I, I can kind of answer one. I mean, we are we're we're largely focused on the the enterprise and and specifically healthcare insurance and and financials. And what we see across our customers is that developers um, at these um, enterprises, as much as they would like to be only working on greenfield applications, just like every single person who's ever written code ever, um, nobody wants to touch somebody <laughs> else's code, right? And so um, what we see, though, is that most mm. of these developers have an application portfolio, right? They're working on typically three to five different applications. Um, and so one of those may be Greenfield, and four of those are going to be maintenance or, or Brownfield or, or even some bad old, you know, Oracle application, um, as much as we love to poke fun at them. And, and so what typically happens is there's a number of different uh, kind of runtimes and ways that they need to work with each of these applications. And so without that tunability in our platform, we're really, we'd really just be constraining ourselves to work on the future. And the future is a beautiful, nice, sunny place, uh, but it's going to take a while for us to get there. And so we, we do strongly feel that serverless is how applications will be built in the enterprise you know, predominantly as we go forward, especially after 2021 or so, but it's still going to take a decade plus for the rest of those legacy apps that are still driving the majority of the business value in the enterprise to catch up. And so the, the I, I was going to say, I would, I would actually go even a step further because I think that what, what you're building is the next generation of API gateways that, that, you know, enterprises have brownfield infrastructure and applications and the presence of, a Lambda or serverless function allows you to integrate those infrastructures in place in a, in a maintainable way, right? Uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, we, we saw a lot of API gateways where we were just plumbing things together and it was sort of fixed. What, what you're describing takes that to a whole nother level. Um, it, it, in many and ways, that, that right. to me we is where it gets really exciting. And we do have an integrated API gateway because that's what dictates access to the lambdas and also to the containers, right? By by default, 
um, everything is inaccessible except for in the same cluster. And so it's a pretty tight security model. Saying that, we have Kong integrated today, and we think that um, the future is probably Istio. And Istio solves a lot of the issues that your kind of Apogee, Kong, um, pre-existing API gateways have with being with namespace and being being tied really to one kind of physical DNS point, right? So you have um, with with Istio, I think that future that you just described is really going to be uh, even easier to to realize. Now the the question I think and and where we're attacking this from is from the developer point of view. Um, when we look at the whole idea of of DevOps, you know, DevOps is great in the startup land. Um, but when you go to the enterprise, the last thing a business unit that's assigned, you know, 100 developers to build an app wants is their developers trying to figure out how Kubernetes works. There's absolutely zero business value driven for them <laughs> in that. And so we, we think that the future is very much managed Kubernetes. And we, we think the big three clouds will be managing Kubernetes, um, both in their own data center and, and on-prem. And, and we think that really where the value for organizations is going to be is how can we make that software development lifecycle as quick and as smooth and as you know startup-like as possible, right? Even if I'm building and maintaining a, an old application, how can I have a faster development pipeline? Right. So, so you said you said there's two things I want to drill in on. One of them is the DevOps piece, and and the other is the is Kubernetes. Let me let me talk DevOps for a second first, because well, I I agree with you from a hey, I don't want developers installing software or worried about you know product product baking my Kubernetes. A, a lot of what I see DevOps migrating towards is the CI/CD pipeline, and 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 more. How do I get my code into production? The you know lambdas have an opportunity to really speed that process, but it also is a lot more moving parts. You know, the dependency graph is, is, um, you know, mind numbing at, at, at times. How do you help people build, a you know, what I would consider a DevOps process, what you, what I think you've been describing as a CICD process. How do you, how do you help them sustain an application that has, you know, hundreds of, you know, thousands of moving parts? Yeah, it's, I mean, and that is a challenge that I, I think we're just basically starting to understand the, that that is a problem. And, and I think we first started understanding that problem with the whole idea of microservices architecture, right? So microservices on paper, it looks really great, but then you're, you know, confronted with the fact that I have all of these different applications under the hood. That are exposing the, APIs. The Netflix Death Star, to, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you run into a different maintainability paradigm and really, you know, function as a service architecture. If you're starting to say, hey, everything's a function and um, you're keeping state somewhere else, you run into that exact same paradigm very, very quickly. It's, it's kind of swapping one for the other. So I think there's a new set of tooling and I think a lot of it will be kind of workflow or, or function chaining um, to allow us to map that out. But I, but I think that the, the, in the short term, when we talk about CI/CD, you know, first in the enterprise, CI/CD is kind of a myth to production anyway. Um, we'll talk about continuous integration, continuous deployment, but we're talking about CI/CD to the QA stage if you're lucky. Usually only to dev integration, right? Because you know the last thing the QA team wants is for their environment to be changing without them changing it. And so CI/CD is is a great idea. I don't think it's been squared quite yet with what actually happens in large enterprise, especially for scale 
application apps. You know, most of these large regulated enterprises are not Facebook. They're not dog fooding, you know, their, their next version to their internal populations. These are, these are ideas that are just, just scratching the surface. And, and I think where serverless has a big um, opportunity in the short term, and what I think you have probably already been uh, seeing at rack in with, with your implementation of, of Lambda is for connecting events, right? And so, what, what we've seen with CICD in enterprise is that typically enterprises are writing in a lot of different languages. So I may have some older .NET and Java apps. I may have Python in there. I'm playing around with Go in some places. We may even have some, some Node.js. Um, and, and of course, our front end is all over the place. I've got Ember and Angular and you know now I'm playing with React. And so I need to, I need to basically stitch together my whole tool chain that's driving my CI CD. And that's going to be dependent in some cases on the language and the target environment. So I may be using things, uh, you know, I'll have everything in Bitbucket, right? But then for builds, I may be using Travis, I could be using Jenkins. If I'm using GitLab, I may be using their built-in build, you know, build runner. Um, my operating, my operating system's different. <laughs> and, and you're probably, and, and, and you're probably using multiple and that's okay. Cause you're, right. Different you're using teams like 40, might have yeah. different processes. Yeah. Different, yeah, different teams right. of different processes. You know, I'm working on a mobile app on one side and I'm working on, you know, reconciling financial transactions on another side. There are different use cases, different sets of tools. But the fact of the matter is throughout all of these chains, I need to connect an event in one to an event in another. And I need to monitor it. And I don't necessarily want to have a whole VM up and running the whole time. And so the first place we really see serverless coming into its own is around the idea of just making my pipeline run in an automated fashion. And then pretty quickly, when you have the language flexibility that we bring to the table, let's say you're using Chef or Puppet or something that's using Ruby, you realize you can just run that, uh, that script. You don't need Chef or Puppet or Ansible anymore. You can just run it straight in a Lambda. And so pretty soon you start eliminating some of your tooling and you really start expanding your deployment targets. Right. And I think that that becomes very compelling, right? The, the, the time lag between you know, writing code and getting that code deployed, the smaller the unit, the faster that, that deployment cycle. And that, I think that's a big piece of it. I think the flip side is, is that testing things as an integrated whole, you know, you might not know everything that's calling your function. Um, and, that, and that can cause, that can cause problems. Um, yeah. And I mean, and that's if, where if you, putting if, security if you comes into play. How so? Well, so you can either, you know, use secrets on your, um, basically on uh, when an API endpoint is called that triggers a function, right? So you can require authentication, you can rate limiting, you know, you can put another service in front of it um, that's, that's doing real-time monitoring as well. So, you know, there's different security models depending on what, what it really looks like that, that from an application standpoint. Is it an internal or an external application? What sort of, you know, uh, type of attack am I expecting? Is it someone who's going to try and, you know, hack the data out of it? Or is it somebody who's going to do a DOA, a denial of service, right? So, so there's a bunch of different models that can be implemented in front of your, your. Right. Sounds like good application design, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. So I, <laughs> I have a question. I, I want to, it, it's well, but it is, but at the same time, you have an opportunity with the platform to 
start adding guardrails and handholds because what what you've done is you shrunk the amount of surface area for an individual function or an individual call, right? I mean, it's you could wrap it with a whole bunch of of protection. Exactly. You can always put a, a, a precursor function that's doing some of that security. Um, and, and we talk about that a lot in terms of good application design, specifically that you can have a team that doesn't necessarily need to worry about the OWASP top 10 any longer because they can they can build the functionality that they need to build. And then the security team can wrap it, wrap it in additional functions. Let's say that, the, that a team in your mobile commerce is building an app that, that takes credit card data. Well, very quickly, the security team can drop in a function that tokenizes that data that the app team that's dealing with e-commerce never even thought about, right? And so then you're you're having some standardized code as opposed to ad hoc code. And, and, and this is very similar to what Stripe has introduced, right? You just drop our JavaScript in on the page and we take care of all that for you. And so you can do the same thing if you imagine that that JavaScript coming from Stripe is, is just a function. This is this is really cool. There's it's funny because as much as I I use Lambda on a regular basis and I think I know the platform, just in this conversation, right? There's there's layers of generational maturity to come in the industry, um, and I think that people who you know we're at the tip of the iceberg from a from a function as a service perspective. That's exactly right. I mean, and, and I think we don't know what we don't, we don't know. And that's a lot more than we actually know right now. <laughs> Makes sense. I, but it, at the same time, it feels like you're describing a more, um, you know, developer and, and operations friendly platform than, you know, writing code, wrapping it, you know, putting it under a NGINX server and, and then managing VMs. It, it, that, that's, you're, you're a long way more controlled than that. Absolutely. And even if, you've, even if you've standardized the deployment of those VMs, even if you're using best practices and you've got everything scripted in a Terraform call so that your developers can deploy the VMs, you're using standard packages for Nginx, that artifactory, you know, you, you, there's ways to get to a pretty clean deployment model. But it takes a lot of work and a lot of tools and, and, and a lot of operations time to get there. And what's what's going to happen in the future is you're going to be able to, um, and especially as we move towards infrastructure as code, you're going to be able to have all of those different approved packages sitting in, in a, you know, I, I'm going to say public, but I mean public within your organization, within your enterprise, within a repo that's accessible by developers across the enterprise. And what we see and, and where we're kind of driving towards is that developers are going to choose some of the services that they need. I need Nginx, I need Postgres, I need you know X, Y, and Z. They're going to choose these out of a container catalog, and those will be running in container instances. But there's also APIs already existing within the enterprise that you know they need to consume as part of this this application. So they'll be able to choose those those APIs, and they, you know what? They don't want this application to be persistent. They want it to spin up when a request is made. And so then they're going to use lambdas and some of the functionality there. So we really think that application development, not just in the enterprise, but for, for a long time, is not going to be pure serverless or pure a container. It's going to be a, mic, a mashup of containers plus lambdas plus APIs coming off of existing SOA applications that you know what? They work just fine. And, and I think there's a little bit of pragmatism towards how App dev will be done in the enterprise going forward. 
makes a ton of sense. And I, I, I can see 10 years from now or 20 years from now, we'll be saying, back in the day, I used to deploy in virtual machines. Hey, man, <laughs> those brands are still running. <laughs> um, so I, I had two, and, and, and Stephen's Steven's giving me the eyeball for, for time, but, but there, there are two things that I wanted to, 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 to make sure we talked a little bit about, um, so we have to be brief. One is you're using Kubernetes as a, as a base platform. Um, I, is Kubernetes ready to be a you know something you can count on a enterprise having in a consistent way that you that becomes the I just install on top of thing? Uh, um, so uh, we have our fingers crossed, um, and, and I and I think Rack N can can help a lot with that. I mean our our beautiful <laughs> our beautiful future has. Uh, has Kubernetes running on some sort of bare metal infrastructure so that, so that we've cut a lot of kind of cost and resource issues um, from vCenter and, and underlying um, kind of Linux OS um, expansion uh, mm -hmm. out of the picture so that we get a nice, clean place to install. But it's true. Kubernetes is at a very early stage in terms of enterprise adoption. Um, most large enterprises are playing with it. The pace of, um, I, I would say, innovation on Kubernetes is, is moving really, really quickly. Uh, saying that, I think the CNCF is doing a pretty good job so far of keeping, of not allowing feature creep too much in terms of what Kubernetes is doing. You know, by saying, hey, we're going to ship Istio next to Kubernetes and it's part of the default package, but it's a separate piece of software instead of something that's, that's core to Kubernetes and doing the same thing with other pieces of you know, like en Envoy and other pieces of the CNCF ecosystem, I think that's the right way to do it to drive adoption because if, if large enterprise sees Kubernetes changing too rapidly, um, they're not going to. Yeah, I, I guess what I've been and we've, 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 this topic comes up for me in a couple of calls we've had in the past, a couple of podcasts where, you know, an ISV, the resurgence of an ISV <laughs> Uh, ecosystem saying, hey, you know, I can count on Kubernetes being a ubiquitous platform. So now I have a market to sell my software into. I mean, that's what Galactic Fog is doing. You're saying, look, you get Kubernetes installed. We we are an application on top of that. And now there's a marketplace for you for Kubernetes or anybody using Kubernetes can just run your stuff. Um, that to me changes the game. It means that you don't have to be a Amazon customer using Lambda because only Amazon can run it, right? You're saying, look, no, I, if you have Kubernetes, you can install our software and it goes, you know, you know, Galactic Fog doesn't do infrastructure <laughs> and, you know, we now, you, and now you have a big market. Is that, uh, you see what I'm saying? That's what we're hoping for. I mean, and, and I think, you know, okay. what we're seeing, and so we'll shortly, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, be live in the Google Cloud Marketplace. And, and one of the key use cases there is we connect um, different Kubernetes clusters, whether they're running in GKE or running over an Amazon um, or on-prem, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we connect those all together and make it easy to make the workloads portable. Right. And, and so initially, the kind of only Kubernetes, stable Kubernetes implementations we can count on, right, are going to be on the public cloud providers. But we're seeing very quickly, whether it's, you know, Rancher or Heptio or, or some of the on-prem offerings from, from Google and Azure, um, or if it's OpenShift or, or Pivotal, we're seeing that the Kubernetes adoption is, is going very, very quickly. And, you know, one of the things that's really driving that in the enterprise is they want to shrink their VM 
footprint. So we saw, you know, VMware acquire Heptio specifically for that reason, because if they want to stay relevant, they have to figure out how to monetize Kubernetes as well. So, um, you know, again, we are early days and we wish there were more stable Kubernetes in the, in the enterprise, but, but based on what we're seeing, there will be here in 2019. And we think it's definitely um, the year where we'll see a lot more production workload hit Kubernetes. I think that's going to be exciting. I would love to see software companies who feel like there's a big enough footprint that it's a market. And, and that, that, that should, it should bring in a new wave of innovation um, in the software space, which I, 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 that makes me, that, that's why I think Kubernetes is exciting um, because, you know, we're, we create ecosystems with that. Exactly. And then my, my last question, my, my last question um, you know, we, we made a comment about your name with Galactic Fog. Um, in We do a lot of edge podcasts. And so if people who thought that this was going to be an edge podcast talking about fog um, from an edge perspective, uh, I want to give you a chance. Are, are you doing edge work? And did I completely miss the, the lead story or, or is <laughs> well, that? The, is, the funny is, thing is, is we, we, predate, we predate the term fog computing, but we do do edge computing. So uh, what happened with the name is uh, Anthony uh, and his, uh, his aspirations for the company. Um, he wanted something above the cloud, and that's where Galactic came from but also more down to earth and, and easier to use. And that's where fog came from. Um, saying that with our federation capabilities and with one particular telecom that we're working with, uh, they're in the process of rolling out um, basically Kubernetes clusters at all their tower locations. So running laser on top of um, a, a highly dispersed, basically what used to be a CDN, but will now involve compute is absolutely the space we're playing. That sounds amazing. As that progresses, we need to get you back on the show because that sounds. I have a I have a whole nother half hour of questions on using uh, event driven systems on edge. Uh, yeah, my infrastructures my, and what I, that would look like. And and so do we actually. So we love the idea and we're happy to participate. But I'm very curious about what the workloads are, other than doing. Um, basically shrinking the size of data coming in from IoT. So basically taking all the data that's coming in, doing a pre kind of parsing before submitting it back somewhere else. I haven't heard a lot of super compelling use cases for, for edge computing yet, but I'd love to hear some. <laughs> Steven, it sounds like we've, we've got a uh, reason to have Daniel back on. Oh, definitely have to have him back on, not just because I like the name of the company. But, uh, hey, hey, Daniel, for uh, the listeners, if they want to get in touch with you, um, I did see on your website you guys are going to uh, all the key big open source Kuber Kubernetes events, which keep getting more and more Kubernetes events, it looks like. There's an explosion of those. Uh, what's the best way to get in touch, uh, look up your company and everything? Sure, they can email me directly. I'm Daniel at galacticfog.com or, or hit us through our Slack channel or through the contact form on the website um, at galacticfog.com. We're pretty pretty easy to find. Great. Well, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was, uh, it was really good. I liked it a lot. Rob and Daniel, thanks so much for spending time. And Daniel, we'll be in touch in a couple months. And certainly when you have something that you want to talk about again, just reach out to us. Uh, we'd be happy to have you on. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the conversation.